It's 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul heard this, hurled the spear, but he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was, in, was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence, and made him commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be, be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Methulite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus, 
and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went, along with his men, and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have at hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread at hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen 
that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Uh, welcome back to Samuel. Six chapters today. It's going to be a big week. Uh, this week, as I'm sure you've spotted though, uh, we are hitting what we might call the black hole chapters of Samuel, relatively unknown by most people. Um, I think most people's knowledge of Samuel is similar to most kids' Bibles. Um, they know the famous David and Goliath story, chapter 17, where we were last week. Uh, and then it's all very hazy, or worst case, they kind of delete 20 chapters and then skip forward to God's covenant with David, chapter, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that's a travesty, actually. Uh, we really need these 20 chapters of the story before we get to that covenant. But why are they here? Why are they here? As Karen helped us think about, I wonder how you would expect the story to continue after David and Goliath. Because it's obvious, isn't it? David, the little boy, the underdog, uh, rescues the people, defeats the over nine-foot giant, uh, which had all Israel quaking in their boots. Saul should step down, and David should step up. Uh, what do you expect to happen next? What do you want to happen next? Uh, David should be crowned the king. Uh, step aside, Saul. There's a new top dog in town. Uh, let's get on with this story. Why are we waiting for anything else? Uh, surely David has proven himself beyond a shadow of a doubt that he can save Israel from the enemy and rule Israel. But that doesn't happen properly for 20 chapters. Why? We need to learn one key lesson about the Christ. And it's this. The Christ suffers. The Christ suffers. See, um, suffering, it reveals one's true priorities. Back in chapter 13, verse 4, claimed, 14, sorry, claimed the, the Lord God had chosen a man after his own heart. And now we have a chance to watch David closely, have his heart shown to us in technicolored detail, for we need to understand the character of this Christ and his pattern of suffering. Uh, what's more, uh, we need to be prepared to pledge our allegiance to a suffering Christ. That's never going to be an easy thing. Uh, it will always be counterintuitive and painful. 
to follow a suffering Christ. Let's dive into the story and feel this for ourselves. Uh, But just before we dive in, it's just worth saying, uh, we're going to initially uh, ignore Jonathan completely. Um, He is really crucial, but we're going to wait and deal with him um, near the end. So to the story. Uh, So Goliath conquered, his head severed, um, presented to Saul. Um, Israel were free from their enemies. It's a happy day. And so David is adopted into the royal family. Do you see that? Chapter 18, verse 2. Saul took him, that's David, that day, i.e. instantly, and would not let him return to his father's house. And what's more, all Israel, they loved well, David. Everything that David did, verse 5, turned to gold. He was the golden boy. So much so that end of verse 5, being set over the men of war was seen as a good thing in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Uh, you couldn't find a single person to speak ill of David. Uh, and just look at the song that Israel's women sang. Uh, you'll be delighted to hear that I'm not going to sing it to you now. Um, although I did encourage Matt to sing it. I don't know why he didn't. Any reason? No? Uh, verse 7, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And in one sense, this just isn't true, is it? David's killed one guy. Big one, sure, but just one, right? Uh, And commentators say that the lyrics uh, intention isn't to say that Saul is good, but David is better. It's just not how Hebrew poetry works. And whether that's true or not, Saul does take it as a slight. Verse 8, Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And that phrase there, displeased him, literally means Saul had an evil eye. It's brilliantly written. And Saul reflects, and so the panic inside him bubbles up. Uh, Maybe David is going to snatch the whole kingdom from me. Uh, We might think, uh, not a problem, surely. Saul's just a bit jealous. Um, He's just being a bit melodramatic. Uh, But no, Uh, here starts the murder attempt roller coaster. Um, Buckle in now, because this is going to go very quickly (laughs) through six chapters. Uh, Look at verse 10. Uh, The next day, a harmful spirit, note the next two words are key, from God, rushed upon Saul, and he raved upon the house. Uh, raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. So all the murder attempts which follow, they come from God. Uh, it's like God wants to put David through these trials so as to teach us the pattern of this Christ. And what proceeds are so many murder attempts, it's very easy to lose count. Uh, murder attempt number one, verse 11, not just once, but twice, but we'll call it just one attempt, Uh, Saul tries to spear David, and his spear was sharper than Karen's um, ball that she threw. And the contrast is comical, isn't it? Uh, The current king has spear in hand. Uh, The Christ just has a lyre in hand. Uh, And just picture it. Uh, Mid-concert, spear thrown, uh, David evading the spear somehow. I doubt that dodging spears with a lyre in hand mid-performance would be all that easy. Um, Do you think that he maybe resumed the concert after the first throw as well, before the second? (laughs) I'm not sure. He certainly wasn't going to stick around for a third split, that's for sure. 
So Saul gets cunning, and he tries murder attempt number two, verse 13. He makes David a commander of thousands. In other words, he sends him to the front line. Uh, Let the enemy get him. Uh, Perhaps Saul thinks, uh, hopefully there'll be a better throw than I was. But murder attempt number two is a failure. Verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings. Verse 15, Saul obviously hated it. But, verse 16, all Israel and Judah are falling head over heels in love with David. So Saul turns to plot murder attempt number three. Verse 17, Saul says, have my daughter if you keep fighting. It's another veiled attempt at delegated murder. In other words, uh, David, go and now fight with reckless ambition because of a girl. Although humble David nearly shoots down the plan before it started because verses 18 and 19, he thinks he's not worthy to marry into the royal family. Although the plan is quickly revived because Saul remembers he has another daughter. How handy. Michael, uh, plots revived. Uh, Maybe Saul thinks, uh, surely Michael's fluttering eyes would cause David to be more reckless than before. Murder attempt number three, take two. And after some sweet talking, buttering up David, Saul says, verse 25, there's no bride price. All that is except uh, just a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. A brilliant plan from Saul, uh, even if this is the most unusual father-in-law present request ever. The less time we think about this, the better, though. Um, But just how difficult is this going to be for him? A hundred Philistine foreskins. Saul's intention is very clear, isn't it? End of verse 25. Kill the Christ. Hopefully, David will get distracted or impassioned with love so as to achieve this bride price. Bless you. (laughs) Yet the story is just hilarious, isn't it? Uh, Not just 100 foreskins, but 200 foreskins. Pockets emptied from David. I presume that's how he carried them. Foreskins delivered. Saul counts the lot, I guess. Um, And Saul's third murder attempt has spectacularly failed, hasn't it? So now, Jonathan loves David, all Israel loves David, even Saul's daughter loves David, and now he's married into royalty. (laughs) Saul is petrified how the tables are turning on him. And chapter 19 is no different to chapter 18. It's yet more murder attempts. Uh, But each attempt is thwarted, first by Jonathan, then Michael, then finally by Samuel. Firstly, uh, Jonathan simply talks Saul down from cold-blooded murder. Verse 5, why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And it works, very briefly, because it's a very short-lived solution. Saul rages again and throws yet another spear. Is that murder attempt number five now? I think I'm losing count. Uh, Murder attempt number six, chapter 19, verse 11 Um, Saul sends his henchmen to collect David for execution. But Michael, David's wife, and Saul's daughter, don't forget, 
Uh, she warns David to go on the run and then lies for his protection. Uh, she even sticks an idol under his duvet to pretend that David is still there, um, but just sick and asleep. Um, it's old school teenager lying, isn't it? Um, but it works amazingly. That trick never worked for me. But I guess I always use pillows instead of an idol. Maybe that's where I was going wrong. David now then, running out of options, verse 18, ends up hiding with the now very old man Samuel, the prophet, in what is technically known as the absolute middle of nowhere. What kind of life is this for the anointed king? So, murder attempt number seven, Saul has all his prophets on the lookout hunting for David. Uh, Mind you, the author hasn't lost his sense of humor. Uh, The chapter ends with tall Saul, the supposedly powerful king, uh, naked, humbled, babbling, utterly powerless. Uh, God is making himself very plain to Saul, if only he'd listen. Uh, Leave my Christ alone, will you? You cannot win. And we'll come back to chapter 20 later. But the suffering only intenses as we go deeper into our chapters. Chapter 21. David is now properly on the run. Uh, He lies and he begs for some bread from the priest. And he lies to this priest, mostly, I think, to protect Ahimelech the priest so that Ahimelech doesn't get killed for helping the king's enemy. He's trying to protect him from treason. Although David's attempt to save him, well, they ultimately fail because, chapter 22, Saul kills every single priest that he can lay his hands on. Uh, You can just feel the noose tightening around David's neck through these chapters, can't you? Uh, End of chapter 21. In the hands now of Achish, the Philistine king of Gath, David has to pretend to be mad to escape murder attempt number eight, foaming at the mouth so that they don't kill him. Some life for this Christ, eh? In chapter 22, we have murder attempt number nine. Um, It's all becoming very desperate from Saul. Uh, Chapter two, verse seven, Saul tries to bribe his men to seek out David. And Saul rightly states, Um, David's got nothing to give you. And he's not wrong there, is he? David has nothing. Saul says, I've got fields and vineyards and power to make you commanders uh, in the army. It's blatant and ugly from Saul. Saul will stop at nothing to pursue David. But the bribe just doesn't work. Israel are growing in their loyalty to David. So the betrayal, well, it needs new means. Uh, Step forward, Doeg, uh, literally worry. The Edomite, the Gentile, the enemy, the problem. We should be worried about him. And so Saul is now basically a Gentile king with spear in hand, wearing Gentile armor. And the only person loyal to him now is a Gentile. He's become the king that God had warned them about all along. He is the king they had asked for, power hungry, ugly, and against the Lord and his anointed. 
and the coldest of executions ever is ordered. And it's after, he's after the priest Elimelech's faithfulness to David. Kill every priest you can lay your hands on. Murder attempt number 10, only this isn't an attempt. This is just murder. Kill the priests who are loyal to innocent David. But hang on a second, there's hope. No one's going to do this, verse 17. All Israel are loyal to David. Maybe there is hope for all these priests. And yet one hand volunteers. Doeg, the Edomite, he'll do it. Verse 18, see how the tables have turned. I see back in chapter 15, God ordered Saul to conduct a holy army, a holy war against the Gentiles. Remember, that's where he didn't do it very well and he kept the sheep. And now in chapter 22, Saul tells a Gentile to conduct a holy war against God and his anointed. And he ends up doing this one really rather well indeed. Saul has set himself up in the place of God, like all tyrants do. Saul is the ultimate one to whom allegiance must be given or else. Now, all too briefly, chapter 23, David is now ambushed. He's in a gated city. But David has access to God's guidance in the prophet. And so, of course, he can easily escape. Of course, God is going to protect his anointed, but not from all the suffering. He ends up roaming the desert of Zeph, where Saul continues to pursue him. David's betrayed yet again in verses 19 and 20. Murder attempt number 11, I think we're now up to. And David, once again, hears and escapes to the desert of Moan. And then just when it looks like the game is up, the Philistines, well, they just so happen to invade as Saul closes in on David. Let's pause for breath, having been on that whirlwind tour through those six chapters. I wonder how you think David felt in these chapters. See, all Israel seemed to love him, but Saul, the one with all the power, just wanted him dead. Life for him sucked. He suffered, and he suffered a lot. What kind of life do you imagine the Christ to have? Not one of 11 plus murder attempts. Uh, Not one of having to hide out in a random village with a random old prophet. Uh, Not one of foaming at the mouth pretending to be mad. Not one of having no place to lay his head. The Christ suffered. And David has no home when Saul is in the comfort of the king's camp. See, the Christ is on the margins. The suffering Christ, he is the true Christ, the one God is with. Far from bringing his identity into question, his betrayals and the marginalization, they confirm David as the Christ. See, we need to know, we need a suffering Christ, a king that fits the pattern really of Hannah's prayer, which we thought about in our memory verse. But why? 
Why do we need to know that the Christ suffers? Why do we need to know that? Uh, What kind of life does the king live? See, it's all very well and good to have a king ride into battle to defeat Goliath. But you see, when push comes to shove, uh, when the rubber hits the road, what is he like under real, continuous pressure? Does he trust the Lord? Uh, Will he listen to God's voice and no other voice? Will he take matters into his own hands? Uh, Can you imagine any more extreme circumstances for God to put David in to make this point? I can't. The Christ suffers. See, the moment we know that, well, then we'll not only know God and his reversals better, but we'll be able to spot the true Christ when he comes and we'll be able to follow him wherever he goes, whatever he does, whatever he says. And of course, with Hannah's prayer and the commentary from chapter two still ringing in our ears and explaining all that's been going on, it shouldn't surprise us, should it? If God's ways are things that we just couldn't predict or expect, After all, God's ways to us are very mysterious. A Christ that suffers, really? We need to see the world from a heavenly perspective. This is how God runs the world. The Christ will suffer violent opposition. That's his plan. David's rise to kingship is through suffering. Through pain, through anguish, through persecution, through weakness, through betrayal. That is the Christ's pattern. See, if we really understood this, then when it is hard to follow him, we won't flinch an inch. We won't flinch an inch. And that's a lesson worth learning, isn't it? And so we come to our conclusion, or we could call it, our application. The Christ suffers, so pledge your allegiance. Pledge your allegiance. Uh, We need to go back and consider Jonathan, crucial Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, he's at the the start, the middle, and the end of these chapters that we've got today. And after today, Jonathan just drops out of the narrative completely until chapter 31, uh, where he gets a single line mentioning his death. And so Jonathan, he's really key um, and unique um, for us in these chapters. He's our lesson to learn from. And how do you respond to the suffering Christ? Turn back to chapter 18. Uh, And in chapter 18, we've got Jonathan on one hand and David on the other. Uh, The old heir to the throne and the new king in town. In chapter 18, verse 1, they were literally knitted together, like two stitches in a tightly knitted scarf, locked together, two peas in a pod, inseparable, total allegiance, best of friends, a deep love. Now it's worth, um, sadly, we need to just pause and say that their love was so strong that some, more recently nowadays, have been wrongly saying and thinking that they were in an active homosexual relationship together. 
That is totally farcical, can I say. There is zero evidence for the claim uh, beyond the word love. (laughs) And if that is our measure, well then, I think John the disciple who clearly loved Jesus, he was in a romantic sexual relationship with him. Um, Maybe we could also extrapolate that logic to any man who has ever said the words, I love you, to another man. Obviously, the word love doesn't need to work like that. You won't be surprised that this idea has only been suggested in the last few decades, which probably says more about our sexualized culture than the text in hand and what the author was actually saying. Anyway, back to the text. Uh, David, um, he's the replacement king for Jonathan. How do you think Jonathan would treat David? How would you treat David if he was taking over your throne? In verse 4, Jonathan, he just gives David his robe and all his royal paraphernalia. And that is Jonathan taking off the crown from his own head and pledging his allegiance to David. At Jonathan, he swears a covenant to always love David and be faithful to him. Jonathan's abdicated. He now has resigned from his royal duties to become the king. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think about the family home dynamics after this. Um, Saul, Jonathan's father, let's not forget, he's pressurizing him to become the king. Son, succeed my throne. It's your throne, not his. Uh, Use your rights to the throne. Um, Don't be silly now. Be the next in line. You are him. Tear up that covenant you made. Yet Jonathan pledges his allegiance to this weak Christ. He takes off the crown and he places it firmly on the Christ's head. He humbly steps aside and recognizes the Christ, even when it is so difficult to face reality. We need to turn to chapter 20, which is this pivotal moment in the story. See, the author in chapter 20, you probably noticed when you were doing your reading before getting here today, the author, he slows right down to help us see that this is a key moment. This is the moment of slow motion. And it's the royal party... And David knows that his, th- his threat to his own life is very imminent. End of verse 3. And yet, and yet, I have no idea how, but somehow Jonathan is still ignorant, um, or at least unclear of Saul's intentions to murder David. I don't know what he's been, where he's been hiding for the last few chapters. Uh, maybe he's just in denial. So these best of friends, well, they, they test the waters at the royal party. Uh, Jonathan and David, they come up with this plan. And from what I can see, it's the most over-elaborate and complicated arrow routine possible. Um, I think breeding and training carrier pigeons would have probably been easier than this. And while the party is in full flow, well, David's seat is empty. It's ominous. Saul notices. Jonathan needs to explain. And you have to applaud Jonathan's honesty. Look at verse 29. Jonathan explains, David's told me this. He said, let me go. Or indeed, 
let me get away. Or indeed, literally the words are, let me escape. That's the word, let me escape. He's very honest. So of course, of course, verse 30, Saul leaves Jonathan in no doubt whatsoever. The anger is revealed. David must die. David is dead to me. In fact, he literally says, David is a son of death. Why? Well, because that, verse 31, as long as David lives, Jonathan can't reign. That's Saul's logic. So you see, this is a key, key moment now. Jonathan has to choose sides. Uh, the Christ or his father, his dad. There's no alternative. Choose. And notice what comes from choosing the Christ here. What comes? <laughs> Unbelievably, verse 33, Saul throws the spear now at Jonathan. So now Saul is treating his own son like he's treating David. <laughs> so the complicated archery routine turns out to be used. And these best of friends, they depart in floods of tears. Will these best friends ever see each other again? Jonathan was forced to choose. At which side do you want to be on? The powerful-looking tall Saul, the people's king, the way of authority, the way of status, or David, the weak, the bullied, the suffering Christ. And yet look at the promise in chapter 20, verse 42. David says, go in peace forever. Peace forever. But let's not forget the cost of this peace is hatred from Jonathan's own father, his own dad. And as we draw to an end, we need to ask this question. Why is pledging allegiance to a suffering Christ so hard? Why is pledging allegiance to a suffering Christ so hard? Well, in a word, hatred. Hatred. I pray that you won't be hated by your own dad for following the Christ. But it happens. And hatred can come in many forms from many people, let me tell you. And nobody likes being hated, of course. But when we follow such a suffering Christ, uh, we need to realize that we'll receive some of that hatred that is aimed at the Christ and which will occasionally spill over the edge onto us. See, in those moments uh, when we get hated, uh, we need to realize that we aren't really the target. The Christ is the target. Uh, we are just the collateral damage. If you really knew that, then you'll willingly take any hatred joyfully for following this suffering Christ. So my prayer for all of us here is simply this that we would all pledge our allegiance to the suffering Christ.
I'm going to pray as we close. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these precious chapters, not just for the rich drama and the story, but for painting for us so vividly the Christ suffering. Thank you so much for showing us the way of the Christ is the way of suffering. That is his journey to kingship. And as we keep on watching this Christ, help us, Father, we beg you, help us by your spirit, pledge our allegiance, help us follow in the footsteps of Jonathan, help us take off the crown and put it on the Christ's head. Help us follow the Christ. And Father, the days when we are hated, they hurt. They are horrible. But they are nothing compared to what the Christ went through for us. And so we pray that when we are hated for following the Christ, you in your kindness, that you might help us remember that we are just the collateral damage, that the Christ is the target and we are just standing next to him. Help us, Father, we pray, to stand and not flinch an inch. And we pray that for your glory. Amen.